Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Detour Life. Detour Life is a game changer for both family law professionals and clients alike. Detour Life is an innovative online program which guides clients to easily input and organize the exhaustive document and financial disclosure process and provides professionals with streamlined and secure case management. In addition, Detour Life has comprehensive client onboarding, a secure document repository, income and expense sync, parenting plan agreement features, and much more. I use Detour Life myself, and honestly, one of my favorite features, and one that my clients love as well, is that they can securely link all of their financial accounts directly to the Detour Life platform so that their information is automatically uploaded and updated as time goes on. So whether you're getting a divorce or are a divorce professional, I urge you to check it out yourself Go to Detour Life, that's D-T-O-U-R dot L-I-F-E, and sign up for their free 14-day trial. Then use code SUSAN20 to get 20% off the cost of subscription. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Most domestic violence is not violent. Most domestic abuse is based on power and control. So there's the situational, the people who really just do not know how to handle their emotions, but then there is most coercive control. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today is the first in a special two-part episode with Dr. Christine Cocciola, who's here to speak with me on the really important topic of coercive control. And, you know, this is a phrase that's been bandied about quite a bit lately. We're taping this as the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard Uh, trial is ongoing, although it will probably air after that. But certainly just a lot of what's been happening in the world, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West. I mean, we've been hearing a lot about coercive control, you know, post-separation abuse, post-divorce abuse. And so I really wanted to bring on an actual expert to talk about this. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cochiola. Dr. Christine, or she said I can call her Christine, so I will actually. She is a coercive control advocate, educator, researcher, and a survivor herself, which I think is really important to give a layer of understanding to really where she's coming from with what she says. She's a tenured professor at Connecticut Community College, as well as an adjunct instructor at NYU. Her expertise is in the area of intimate partner uh, violence, including child abuse 
and a trauma. And she's a founding member of the International Coercive Control Conference and on the board of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So, and she's got a number of fantastic articles and papers and a great uh, chapter in um, a book called, well, it's got a long name. It's called Shared Trauma, Shared Resilience During a Pandemic, During a Pandemic, COVID-19 and Sheltering in Place, the Experience of Coercive Control for College Students Returning Home. So I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. I'm, I'm very excited to have her speak with me. We, we've decided to do this as two parts because we just have so much to talk about. So Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. This is a topic, you know, I mentioned uh, when we had our pre-taping discussion, I've done between my two or three podcasts, I've done 300 plus episodes, yet I have not done one on coercive control. And I think that is because I have been hesitant to talk about this topic without having someone who truly understands it on the other side of the mic. A lot of people out there claim to be experts on this or have a lot of opinions on this particular topic, but I think it's really important because it's such a nuanced, it's not subtle, um, but I'm trying to come up with the right word for this. It's just such an insidious issue. And that's the word. I found the right word, everybody. Um, it is an insidious issue. And, you know, it's something that I, frankly, as a divorce attorney, have seen for years. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't know what was happening. No one ever told us about this or explained the dynamics to us. So thank you again. And I, I really want to start at the very core, probably the hardest question, but what is coercive control? Thank you. Thank you so much. I think you did a really great job of unpacking how nuanced it is. And I think the word is insidious. Coercive control, the terminology actually came out of Evan Stark. Dr. Evan Stark is the international expert on coercive control. And he coined the term in the 1970s. He actually is one of the first, had the first domestic violence shelter. He had it in his home with his with his wife, Annie, in New Haven, Connecticut. And women would come in and they would be so afraid of their abusers, but they would say to him things like, I, I, I'm not as worried about him hitting me. I'm just worried about all of the other things that he does. And they began to explain what he determines as one aspect of course of control is psychological abuse. It's this gaslighting, manipulating, degrading of someone as a person, minimizing who someone is, either with children or otherwise. We call it a stripping of autonomy. That inability to really know who we are any longer in a relationship because the relationship has been so, for lack of a better word, shrouded in a veil. Like it's just the relationship now is under this veil of, I mean, it sounds a little dramatic, but we call it intimate terrorism because you don't really realize what's going on while you're in it very often. And so he came up with this term and he always says that we too often look at the violent incident model. That's the model we use for domestic violence. And I'll tell you, if I had 
like my perfect dream, I mean, there's so many, but maybe one of my top five dreams is that coercive control becomes a household name, that we begin to look at it as the foundation of all domestic violence or virtually all domestic violence. So let me backtrack a little bit. There's really fantastic research out there now, which is great, that like pulls apart the types of domestic violence there is. And we know that couples sometimes will participate in situational violence, we call it, where there's two people fighting. Sometimes it becomes physical. It's volatile. They don't get along. They don't have really good coping skills. But there may be two people doing it. There may be one person who's violent, another person who's violent back, right? But it's not based on power and control. It's based on bad coping. It's based on, I'm angry. This is, again, bad coping. This is how I'm going to react. I'm going to push you because I'm mad at you. That's very different than coercive control. Coercive control is the foundation of most domestic abuse. And I'm going to call it domestic abuse because, again, another really shifting of the paradigm here. Most domestic violence is not violent. Most domestic abuse is based on power and control. So there's the situational, the people who really just do not know how to handle their emotions. But then there is most coercive control. It is this model of non-physical, can be non-physical, it can be physical, but based on the non-physical, it's psychological in nature. I'm going to make you think that you're not a great mother. I'm going to put you down, but then I'm going to intermittently reinforce you. I'm going to, out of the blue, say, oh, you're such a good mother. Maybe on Mother's Day, tell you you're a wonderful mother, but then throughout the year, Various times counterparent you, put you down, malign your character with other people behind your back. And so, again, it's a stripping of autonomy. So the victim becomes very, and I spend a lot of time talking about the psychological aspect because honestly, that's what impacts the brain's functioning, the brain's ability to know that there's something wrong. If he had only hit me, right? Isn't that what we hear people say? If he had only hit me, then I would have known there was something wrong. But when you're with someone, um, and so you mentioned I'm a survivor, when you're with someone for over 20 years, you knew them since you were 15 and 16, and they never hit you. Might have pushed you a couple of times, and you might have pushed back, by the way, right? right? But that you you really begin to lose who you are and what you know um evan stark calls it unknowing what we know like you you don't any longer know what is appropriate and inappropriate what is healthy what is unhealthy because you've been so gaslit and manipulated and the intermittent reinforcement that occurs creates this maybe it's okay maybe the relationship isn't so bad right? The cognitive dissonance that we talk about, we can talk about trauma bonding. I mean, there's so many places we can go, right? So that's, so coercive control is that psychological abuse, which we can talk about for hours, the legal abuse, which you are so familiar with, right? The abuse of the system to harm victims, 
This is where perpetrators will say, okay, you're leaving me? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to take you back to court for this, this, and this, even though they're frivolous. Or even though he, and I'm using he because most often the perpetrators are male, and we can talk a little bit more about characterological issues that point in that direction. Um, but that legal abuse, the vexatious litigation, the terminology that we're using, the financial abuse, I'm going to take away everything that matters to you financially, all of your all of your foundational footing to keep you get to give you the ability to be independent. Right. You have to stay with me because if you don't, then you're going to... You have nothing. Exactly. Right. Um, and then I would say probably the worst part that we know about coercive control and the most heartbreaking is when the children are used as pawns and they're manipulated to either harm the victim, to be the messenger of the abuse. They be, almost become proxies of the domestic abuse or the abuser... Um, because of his power and control, is able to coercively persuade the children to have very little to do with the victim because he has the power. And so he, in some ways, becomes their best tactic for survival is to align with the abuser. I think that kind of unpacks it. I'm sure, I'm sure there's more to go through, but... <laughs> Well, I think actually that is a wonderful um, way of, of pointing out just why this is such a huge topic to be talking about. Because as you've just you know said, I mean, we're talking about psychological abuse. We are talking about legal abuse. We are talking about abuse involving children, children as proxies. Uh, you know, there's so much that goes into this. And, you know, that word insidious, I do think you're right. It's the right word because this is all happening. It doesn't happen. Like a punch comes out of the, you know, boom, punch. You felt it. It's done. It happened in an instant. We can call that abuse. Mm -hmm. The type of abuse or, or coercive control that we're talking about here, I think, generally happens over an extended period of time and escalates so that somebody, that's how you were saying, you don't even really know that you're in it or that it's happening because I don't think they, the abuser jumps to the high level of abuse right away. They start with these little insidious chipping away of your personal identity, et cetera. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, and that's the really interesting part is that coercive control is a pattern of behavior. So, these abusers know what they're doing. They're doing it intentionally to, to retain or regain control over a long period of time. And so if you are in a relationship with someone and you're committed to being with that person, you have children with that person, perhaps, or you know, fur babies with that person, you don't want to dismantle the relationship because he was mean last week to you and he put you down in a crowd of people when maybe he had too much to drink. You're, you're not going to do that, right? Um, so you're going to hold on. You're going to hold on tighter and wait for something good. And then he's going to give you something good. It's that intermittent reinforcement. Exactly. And that's going to pull you right back in. And so, and I would say that, you know, you're right. The thing about a bruise, right? Like, is that 
you see it, right? Here's the other problem. This is so confusing. It's so confusing for the victim to be aware of. And, and I'll go back to, I began, began my career at 19 as a domestic violence sexual assault crisis counselor. I worked in child protective services. I saw domestic violence over and over again. I did not notice this in my relationship. I could not put my finger on it. And by the way, teach every single semester on the power and control and post-separation abuse wheel. I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than other people. I'm trying to say, like, if I couldn't see it, then how, and how, how can the most astute of us working in the field not actually recognize that it's happening to us? And so we expect victims who maybe don't have that level of expertise to understand it. And I would say that, first of all, it's a spectrum of abuse. So some abusers are so malignant and covert about it that it's so minute that even if you were to tell a friend they'd be like really that doesn't I mean well so he, he's you know come on he's such a good guy right how bad is it like oh so he was mad the other day my my boyfriend does this all the time so in other words we also so we I, I like to say that we self-gaslight we gaslight our he's gaslighting us we gaslight ourselves and everyone around us perhaps gaslight us joins in. or we're afraid to tell them because we are like, well, wait, wait a minute. Maybe it's not real or everybody loves him. I don't like, do I want people to not like my partner? Like, I don't want to do that. So I would say that if you add in the variable of children, we also in some ways are gaslighting our children because we don't want our children to think the relationship is as bad as maybe it is sometimes. We're trying to create this wonderful family system and navigating the abuse in such a way, I like to call it, we're hopping around like a leapfrog all around our house. We're doing, egg, it's eggshells. It's like, what is going to make him happy today to create equilibrium in the home so that I don't set him off so that the kids don't think there's a problem. We're having company tonight. And when that company comes, I mean, he, he might actually cancel the plans if I don't keep him happy today. And I want my company to come because I want to have this experience, this positive experience. And he's so good with other people. So maybe this, like you see, it becomes like this, it's like this trail we're running all the time. And I would say that there's mines along the trail and we're trying to avoid them. So insidious, patterned, intermittent reinforcement um, and our brain, I mean, to talk a little bit about the brain's functioning, the brain wants to protect us. So the brain really doesn't want to think there's something bad going on here. The brain is dissonating us from what the reality is over and over again. And then a good thing happens. And that event with your friends is a positive affair that you have at your house. And you're like, oh, things are okay. And that's what happens. Listeners, if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please visit www.thehotline.org. That is the website for National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can also call them at 
SAFE, S-A-F-E, which is 7233, 1-800-799-7233. They have all kinds of help. They have resources. They have plans for safety. And there are ways that you can help others. So please visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline at hotline.org. Stay tuned for more from Christine as we delve deeper into the issues of intimate partner violence, abuse, and coercive control. And it wasn't until, I'm going to use a term here, the post-separation abuse got so intense that it crystallized for me. In other words, I had to leave that fifth or so time for, for it to crystallize for me that he is an abuser. I couldn't believe it before. If you're enjoying this episode, check out last week's show with Vasya Serentopoulou, the founder of Anti-Loneliness, as she shares her tips on why we're lonely and what we can do about it. So I think it's more about the emotional connection. And this is what changes in couples that I work with. We always, always talk about the emotions and understanding each other. And this is what brings connection with them again. And now we return to today's show. What I find, you know, hard to fathom in this is because it's pretty consistent. I mean, what you're describing is insidious, but it is a consistent pattern of behavior. You also called it a pattern. Mm -hmm. And the abuser, whether it is a he, as you said, or a she, is pretty consistent in what they do. How is an abuser created like that? How do they know this process that it boggles my mind but it happens over and over again how is an abuser created and what is it that makes victims stay it's never their fault ever 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 right i always have to preface this i just completed a research study and it's it's called perfect prey the intersection of coercive control and subjugation because many of us in in this world that we live in and many women in particular have grown up to be aware of the need to accommodate, to be givers, right? Um, To, you know, attempt to people, please, maybe, right? More than we should. And that's, these. so these are cultural values we grow up with, right? These are societal values. These are the way, these, it may be the way that we're born, tend to be female traits. So like all those layers, right? And so, um, and so this idea that people who are have poor attachment in life, they're born, and they did not grow up in a home where they were given unconditional positive regard by a primary caretaker. That could be anyone. Primary caretaker. Abusers do not have that. They may, it may appear that they have that. They may um, think, they may say, I have a great relationship with my mother. But when we look further, we recognize that, that whoever their primary caretaker was um, did not love them unconditionally. Children need to be loved unconditionally with positive regard. And um, so I'm trauma, I'm a trauma-informed therapist. And I see this over and over again when people come into my private practice where there is one parent, thankfully, 
who does love the children unconditionally. And I have seen this, I, I have a particular uh, client right now and he's a young man and he is so giving and kind and um, allows people to push his boundaries all of the time. His mother, um, when the parents divorced, would just say things like, you know, you're never going to amount to anything or, you know, and then also would say horrible things against the dad. And, and so this child had very minimal relationship with the dad, but there was an attachment. There was. And that's what happens is that there, even if it's a minimal relationship, even if there was an attachment at some point that was positive, that is basically a child saving grace to grow up healthy. But if there wasn't, then the only way I, if I am an, someone who did not have that positive, unconditional um, love, then I grew up with shame. And I have so much shame that I can never expose who I really am to anyone because who I really am is bad. Who I really am, I was told over and over ago, again, is bad. So what I do is I spend my life pretending to be someone I'm not, right? And we know this about abusers. They have this persona they have out there. They're the people who yeah. go to court totally contained, looking well put together while the victim is sobbing, right? Yes. 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 And she's pathologized, which we know is yeah. happening in a current case right now. There's a pathologizing of victims over and over again. And he is put together because that's his persona. That's his fake persona. That's his mask. He has to, in order to feel good about himself, the only way that shame is resolved, the shame is pushed down, the shame he does not have to deal with is if he can have power and control over you. That's what, that's what gives him the ability to feel, to feel less shame, to feel less vulnerable. Yeah. So, so it's sad on both sides. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, so there's a little compassion in that for an abuser, not that there's ever, it's never okay to be an abuser, but I, it makes sense to me that it comes from almost an abuse in and of itself or, or a lack in a childhood. So somebody is caught or a couple is caught in this cycle Mm -hmm. and what we really see is a, a relationship that just becomes more and more dysfunctional mm-hmm. over time, right. right? The the abuser tends to just, as I said, grow in those abusive behaviors. And the party who is being abused tends to go down that, that rabbit hole of abuse where what they would never have tolerated up here. And for those who are not watching, I'm, I'm up, I'm showing my hand up high or those who are, you know, are listening. And, but as time has gone on and the pattern has continued, they are putting up with and, and making excuses for and excusing or moving beyond or allowing whatever we want to call it, um, increasingly abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. How does how, how does someone start to recognize what's happening? How do they, if no one's ever going to hit them, which thankfully, hopefully maybe, the, but how does somebody 
realize that they're in that cycle. You, you're touched on so many important parts. I'm going to go back to this yeah. like leveling up, right? So what we know about, um, and my research study actually kind of confirms this, um, and it hasn't been published yet, but what we know is that abusers tend to continue to take and victims tend to continue to give. So the boundaries keep getting pushed back further and further and further. And so when the boundary was here, it didn't seem appropriate and you weren't too happy about it. But from here to here, and people can't see me either maybe, but the, the, the intense pushing of boundaries happens so slowly and insidiously that you don't even realize that you have compromised your boundaries so much. And so it takes on average seven attempts to leave an abuser. And, and why? Because when she leaves, the abuse, he'll beg for her to come back. When she leaves, she's financially decimated. When she leaves, she worries about her children and going between two homes, right? The children may be going to the home of the abuser. I mean, there's so many reasons why victims leave and then go back. But I would say that if we know it takes so many attempts, that what is also happening is that her own boundaries have been so compromised that if he comes back and says he's going to do better, he's sorry, all of those things, that that's going to make the shift for her, for her to, to be willing to try again. And then I would say that sometimes you have to leave that many times. I left at least five like whether it was just for a weekend or I said I'm leaving, whatever it was. And it wasn't until, I'm going to use a term here, the post-separation abuse got so intense that it crystallized for me. In other words, I had to leave that fifth or so time for, for it to crystallize for me that he is that, that he is an abuser. I couldn't believe it before. And so kind of relating back to the question you had about abusers, if she stays, his abuse is going to, he's going to still abuse her. But if she leaves, his abuse is going to get that much worse and because he's lost control. And this is what we know about filicide, children being murdered in custody disputes. This is what we know about femicide, that the moment a woman decides to leave, she's actually more at risk yeah, of harm. It's the most dangerous time. The most right? dangerous time. So, so I would say that sometimes for some victims, certainly for me, the only way that I recognized it, and again, having taught on this for 20 some odd years, the only way I recognized it was when it intensified so intensively. And I would say that Sharps and Jeffs and Kelly, Sharps, Jeffs and Kelly talk about this idea that coercive um, post-separation occurs in 90% of coercive control cases. So if we free, reframe domestic violence as being either situational, domestic abuse, as situational or coercive control, and we know that most are coercive control, and then we say that 90% of those coercive control victims are going to suffer post-separation abuse. Whoa. I mean, that's like mind-blowing to me. Think about the caseload in our courthouses right now and how many of those cases probably have some element of coercive control and post-separation abuse, yet 
frankly, having you know worked in that world for quite some time, there's not a lot of information shared with our judiciary and our court personnel on the dynamic or with our attorneys, because frankly, we're sort of the front guard. We we get caught up as pawns in the, you know, who's filing those motions, who's bringing those legal actions. It's usually done through attorneys and not always. Sometimes people are pro se. But, you know, one of the things that that I remember is realizing that you don't realize how bad it was until you get away from it, that it's almost impossible when you're living in mm-hmm. it to comprehend it. As you just, I think it's, it's sort of indicative of what you just said about your, your experience. You have to have that space of time and perspective where you're not living under it for even a short period of time, hopefully, before you can even see just where your life has gone, just how the abuse has what it has taken from you. Agreed. And then I would say that remember the personality of the abuser is that when he's going to get worse and when he gets that much more worse, there's no doubt any longer, right? So the doubt will come back if he doesn't intensify, but because he can't, he can't refrain from intensifying because he's lost control because of his characterological issues, right? His personality. Right. Um, so then he gets that much worse. And for me, that was, I mean, there were so many horrifying things that happened that was like, whoa. And then you can, at that point, you tell people you're able to share with loved ones. And I say it takes a village to leave an abuser. It really does. It does. You have to have people who are in your corner there supporting you and ready for you to return, perhaps, and being there without judgment when you do. But it, it takes a village. Well, and that's hard because as much as, and and one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this episode is I want, I want people who are going through this to, to find some hope and understanding. Cause often if you don't know anything about this, it's like, well, he never hit me. So I'm not an abuse victim. I'm not abused. I'm, I'm not, you know, you don't even know, but I also want everyone else in the world who may know someone who is in this situation to understand just how difficult and pervasive uh, this issue is. And that because I know people who get very frustrated with their family members who leave for a day or two and then go back into a situation that they feel is abusive. And as you just said, you need your village, but people have a very hard time understanding, well, why would they go back? Why don't you just leave? Mm -hmm. Are you asking me to? Yeah. 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 I think um, so. So I think back to attachment. Right. So first of all, and, and you know, one of the things about coercive control that it, sometimes sexual abuse can happen in coercive control, or let's just say that someone's, you know, bribe, like there's bribery, there's extortion involved in this, right? The doxing, like people have your personal information. So when you leave, you have to be willing to leave knowing that this abuser, again, characterological issues, is going to do virtually anything to destroy you. Virtually anything. That means destroy the relationships with your children. And if you come back, maybe he won't. Maybe he won't dox you. You know, maybe he won't tell his whole family and all of your friends 
horrible things about you. And the amount of, um, I call it technology facilitated coercive control. So remember that if you think that you are in an abusive relationship, there's a very good chance, very good chance that that abuser has your computer hacked, your car tracked, your phone hacked. You do not need access to someone's computer to hack their computer. You don't need access to someone's phone to track their phone and their car, the same thing. So thinking about all of the ways that this person is is literally like a puppeteer controlling you, that's a scary place. That's so frightening. It's just so frightening to think about having to leave that. So that's why I believe. As you said, it's when you leave that they start some of that beha- those behaviors. They start doing some of those things. And it, maybe it's just a couple of those things that make you, make you think, it's better if I go back. And, and, and I know for parents, for mothers, I, w- I would say I've heard also because of the, having their children, we'll talk in the next episode about the post-separation mm-hmm. abuse more. But I do know for mothers often they feel that they have at least the control if they're in the household to protect their children rather than if they're in a different space, but the children have to go back with the abuser on a shared parenting schedule. So I know there's, it's another type of control, right? They feel like at least if I'm there, I can protect them. Correct. Absolutely. And I think, so um, again, knowing and acknowledging how difficult it is to leave, knowing the risk factors, we're talking life sometimes, risk factors, right? Of leaving. Um, knowing all of that, if you can leave, you will show your children a path to freedom, if you can. Children are watching us, as we all know, and leaving may mean that they're very confused for a period of time because maybe, again, you gaslit them into believing this person wasn't an abuser, right? I mean, there's all of that. Um, And and the appropriate parenting through that process is really my area of um, extreme interest and, I believe, expertise. So, So leaving is so, so difficult, but when you've left and you begin to become, you've shown empowerment and you begin to show your children that you're not weak any longer, that you are in a position of power, you have shown them again, a path to freedom. They don't have to get, they don't have to be in this type of relationship in their life. They don't have to abuse to retain control. In their, in their life. That is the key. I mean, isn't this really what we're talking about? Like, and I, I, I know that we'll maybe talk about it in, in a later episode, but this idea that like we have the ability to show them that this isn't healthy. I mean, that's just huge. It, it transforms their future relational dynamics. It transforms it for them. Well, and it breaks the cycle. Oh, it, it, absolutely. It, it, it changes everything. So I, we, are, we are definitely going to dive into both post-separation abuse, and I want to talk to you about more of your insights for parents who are parenting children in this very 
you know, these very murky waters where they are separating from an abusive parent. So thank you so much for part one. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing more in part two. Everybody who's listening, come back on Thursday. We're going to have another full episode where we dive in with Dr. Cochiola. And in the interim, where can they get more information on you and um, your research, your studies, and your resources? Absolutely. I would say um, they can go to I Know Your Heart because as moms, we all know, and protective parents, protective parents know their children's hearts. So I Know Your Heart.com or Reignited Attachment. Com. I'm also Coercive Control is IPV on most social media platforms and Coercive Control on Twitter. Okay, I'll have all of that in the show notes and we're going to he- hear more from you on Thursday. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Uh, we've be- really barely scratched the surface, but at least we have one more episode to go. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.